Romans have been enjoying wine for 8,000 years or more, and there's never been entry exams, literacy tests, diplomas, or membership fees. You can go as far or deep as you want, or just take it all in and find your happy place. That being said, we like to spend our week looking for things that we can share with you in this space and time. We'll give you food for thought, ideas for adventures, and most weeks, tips, pointers, and insights that you can use the minute the program ends. Wine has always united us. It still does. And we've never needed that more. So climb aboard. There is no time like the present to get your adventure started. So here's your host, the doctor of deliciousness, the chairman of the Bordeaux, the top gun of wine fun, David Wilson. You know, I always like it when somebody says to me, hey, David, you know, I heard you on the show uh, last week and you were just spot on and yeah, I'm really with you on that. I I like that. That's always nice to hear for sure. But in some ways, it's even nicer to hear somebody talk about the exact same thing that I talked about, even though they didn't listen to the show. And to that point, yesterday, I went to lunch with some Italian friends. And by the way, for those of you who don't know, I live in Italy. I am a Californian, but I came here a year ago after living my entire life in California, just because I wanted a change of pace and scenery. And I wanted to do the show from a different perspective, because I felt like all I was presenting most of the time was a very American perspective and definitely a very California perspective. So I thought, wouldn't it be nice if we could look at it from the perspective of people who do see the world and do see wine and food different than I do? So anyway, uh, we're at lunch at a little uh, cafe here in Atri, Italy. And I think there were about eight of us at the table. And uh, luckily, everybody but one person spoke English. So we had a a pretty um, aggressive conversation about wine tasting notes. Because somebody at the table, and I didn't bring it up, but somebody else at the table made a comment about tasting notes. And she said, why is it that everybody feels inclined to describe wines with words that we may not understand. And why do they make it so complicated? And, you know, also, very specifically, why do we use metaphors in describing wine? Because when you use a metaphor, and when I say metaphors, I mean we use something else to describe the wine that in turn needs to be described. When we do that, we get nowhere. We're just back where we started. So if I say, for instance, that uh, a wine has a hint of apple, well, you know, you know what an apple tastes like, and I know what an apple tastes like, hopefully. But what if it's something else when somebody says there's a hint of graphite or saddle leather or barnyard or, you know, any number of things that are used to describe wine? If we don't know what that thing tastes like, we don't know what it smells like, then you've done us 
absolutely no good in describing the wine. And so that was the discussion at the table. And I thought it was terrific that I was in an old world country where they're very, very particular about anything having to do with food and wine. And yet here was this person who had exactly the same uh, opinion that I had. And actually, pretty much everybody in the conversation shared that opinion. In fact, actually, there was nobody that disagreed with that perspective. Last week on the show, I did something a little weird. I took some wine descriptions, That uh, one that was absolutely for real. I just took a description of a well-known Cabernet Sauvignon. There was nothing really wrong with the description, but it used metaphors to describe the wine, several different metaphors. And then I created an algorithm that would allow an artificial intelligence program to take that very subjective description and then boil it down to something more objective. And it was actually very interesting. Now, mind you, I am not suggesting, I said this last week, I'll say it again now, I'm not suggesting that we start writing wine descriptions using artificial intelligence. But I got to say this, that you can feed in all kinds of different things uh, into the artificial intelligence program. Uh, It depends what the program is, of course. And And it can take something that would be a subjective description of something else and then break it down into components that would be more easy for us to understand. For instance, if uh, somebody said that something tasted like brambleberry, I think that's a a thing, right? Brambleberry. Uh, I don't know what that tastes like, but if you could break it down in terms of sweetness and tartness and acid and all of these different things, then you wouldn't have to say brambleberry, right? And so that's what I was getting at was, you know, just could we take a wine description that is using all of these subjective descriptors and then kind of look at what those are really composed of and put it into terms that we might better understand. That was the whole point. Anyway, uh, we're going to talk more on this subject. Uh, Last week, I said that I would have to continue the conversation, but we're going to definitely talk more about it in just a moment. I'm also going to make some recommendations of people who I think that you can trust for great wine descriptions, and I'm also going to spend some time uh, kind of sharing with you a litmus test that basically is a series of questions that you can ask yourself when you're reading wine reviews and pairing suggestions that will kind of help you to decide whether or not you're getting good advice. Uh, More on that in just a second. But before we finish up this segment, I want to go back to lunch yesterday because there is one thing that I want to share with you about eating and drinking in Italy. Now, mind you, if you look at a list any list of countries according to who has the best food. I can guarantee you, every single time, Italy will be in the top three and Italy will be in the number one slot most of the time. Italy is considered to be the best eating country in the world, although some people differ with that opinion. And I'm going to tell you, as somebody who loves Italy, I love living here, I love eating here, I love drinking wine here, that I do not think that Italy is the number one eating country in the world, not at all as a matter of fact, and I hope that my Italian friends are not listening 
mean to me right now because I'm not going to make any friends saying this. So what is the best eating country in the world? Is it France? No, maybe it's Thailand. I love Thai food. Maybe it's China. Everybody loves Chinese food. Uh, who doesn't love sushi? Japan might be on that list. You know, there are a lot of different places that we could look to for the best food in the world. But I'm going to tell you, the best food in the world is in America, bar None. Now, why am I saying that? I'm saying it because most Americans have no idea how lucky we are in the States when it comes to food, because we have our own wonderful foods, indigenous foods, foods that have developed since the birth of America, but we have everything else as well. And we do it really, really well. And you know, one thing I can tell you is that a lot of the Italian food that I eat in America is every bit as good as the Italian food that I eat here in Italy. And it's because the people who are making the food in America, the Italian food, are Italians. Now, there's a difference, a bit of a difference. Americans are not real fond of al dente, you know, having the pasta kind of on the chewy side. That's sort of not our thing, right? And it's actually not mine. I like my pasta a little bit softer. But in terms of the sauces, ingredients that we use, we do a great job. And I think that if you go to sushi restaurants in the U.S., you will find there are just so many fabulous sushi restaurants. And I can tell you, having spent some time in Japan and living there a couple of summers, that the sushi that we have in the U.S. is, I think, every bit as good as the sushi that I had in Japan. I've also spent a lot of time in China. And the Chinese food that we have is pretty darn good. Now, I'm not, by the way, talking about the... Um, $9 Chinese buffets. Although, if you're just really hungry and you want to satisfy that hunger, that's a good place to go. The Thai food in the U.S. is absolutely terrific. So isn't it wonderful that we have our own cuisine, and I haven't even talked about, you know, what, what American food really is, but we have our own cuisine, but we have all of this other ethnic food as well to choose from, and we're very, very lucky. And that's just talking about food, and I haven't spoken about wine, and I'm going to talk about that when we come back next, and I want to make a very important point, because I want to suggest today that we all think very seriously about tearing down something that we have that we've had our whole lives, and maybe it's time to get rid of it. I'm going to get into that in just a little bit, but I'm going to tell you a little story about going out the other night. Uh, we got a lot to talk about here on Grape Encounters Radio. David will be back with more grape encounters right after they touch up his hair and makeup. Oh wait, this is this is radio. Well, there's still paparazzi after the show to deal with. No. The only thing that Mendocino County winemaker Greg Graziano can't tell you about wine is how many different choices he makes. It's somewhere between dozens and cowabunga. Artisans like Greg don't count, they create. Did Da Vinci or Michelangelo take inventory? Let's just say that Italians like Greg can easily get carried away, especially when it comes to food and wine. Great wine is in Greg's DNA. His immigrant grandparents started making Mendocino wines in the early 20s, and despite being the head honcho of the much-beloved Graziano family of wines, Greg is just a humble, lovable guy. When you play in the dirt all day, you can't help but be down to earth. Ask your wine cellar for Graziano Wines or just visit GrazianoFamilyOfWines.com. 
they've got five different brands. Why? Well, because Italians tend to have big families. Life is just more fun with a Graziano at your table. Welcome back to Grape Encounters. Did you know there are more compounds in wine than in blood? Maybe vampires ought to rethink their drink. All right, back with Grape Encounters Radio. You know, I do feel a little bit melancholy today. Today is my mother's birthday. And unfortunately, we lost my mom three years ago. And it's just a a tough time every time her birthday rolls around. And what makes me, I think, particularly sad is that, you know, my mother was 100% Italian. And I think that she would be so excited to hear my stories from Italy. I, I would give anything, anything, if I had had the opportunity to have her here and to be able to have her share in the experiences that I'm having here. Uh, I loved, I mean, I just loved any of the events that we went to as kids that were on the Italian side of the family because it was just so joyful. You know, the sense of family among Italians is really, really incredible. And the food, of course, is really incredible. And my favorite feasting time as a half Italian person was Christmas Eve when you just ate until you dropped and everything on the table was just astonishing. But anyway, my mom would have loved it here. And... The one thing, though, that I'm not sure I would have shared with her (laughs) necessarily is, you know, sort of the negative side of living in Italy. And it also has to do with food and wine, because as good as the food is and as good as the wine is, I got to tell you, and I hope that my Italian friends are not listening right now, the downside of living here is that Italians are very picky and very close-minded when it comes to food. That is to say that when you are in Rome, you do as the Romans do. That is a very, very true statement because when you're in Italy, you're going to eat certain things, and generally speaking, depending upon the region that you're in, you're probably going to be eating mostly regional food. And if you're looking for Thai food, you're looking for Mexican food, you're looking for Ethiopian food, uh, you better look for the airport first because you're not going to get those things. Because Italians are very determined to stick within their culture and their region and only consume the things that they have enjoyed all of their lives. You know, so I learned that lesson kind of the hard way a few months ago when I decided that I couldn't stand not having Thai food for a year. And so I got online, on Amazon to be exact, and I found a really good source for Thai curries and other Thai ingredients. And I got them uh, here in Italy a few days later. And then I started to invite friends over to my house for a Saturday night Thai food feast. And I was expecting a lot of excitement since Italians are foodies, right? But it was just the opposite. I got a lot of pushback instead. As a matter of fact, one of the first people that I talked to was a woman who said to me, 
Thai food. Why would I want to eat Thai food? And I said, because it's delicious. And she's like, no, it's not. Thai food is terrible. It's terrible. I would never eat Thai food. And I said, oh my gosh, you must have had a bad experience. I can't believe that you're saying that. I said, what happened? When did you have Thai food? What was it? And she said, oh, I've never had Thai food. I said, you've never had Thai food and you don't like Thai food? And she says, no, it's terrible. And I realized that this was a circular conversation that was going absolutely nowhere. And so I went on to the next person, got an equally cold reception about the Thai food. Here and there, I found some adventurous people that were willing to come over for dinner. And in fact, they did enjoy the dinner. But for the most part, the people here where I live eat food within a very narrow range. And it's what they grew up with, and they're very, very proud of their culinary heritage. And when it comes to wine, it's exactly the same thing. There are probably about 10 to 14, let's say, varietals of wine that are popular in this part of Italy, and it is what they drink. And you will not find other wines in wine shops and grocery stores You can go to some really, really good wine shops and maybe find a handful of French wines. You won't find any American wines. That's not going to happen. But uh, you might find even, you know, some German wines here and there. But for the most part, it's only going to be Italian wines. In the good shops, it might be Italian wines from the entire country with an emphasis on the region that you live in. But generally speaking, it's almost all going to be from the region. And that means that you will look at a shelf and you're going to see like dozens and dozens and dozens of Montepulciano Dubruzzos and Trebbianos and Pecorinos, but nothing else. So the other night, I I got really frustrated because I just wanted something different. And I actually took a really long walk and I found a good wine shop. I was uh, staying in a different city a a little ways away from where I, I really live. And I found some really good wines, but they were mostly Italian wines. But I did find some European wines and it was kind of a relief to get those. Well, the reason I was down there was I I had a doctor's appointment down there, nothing serious. And then I was going to have dinner with a friend of mine who is a surgeon and his wife, who is a a teacher of Italian. And so we were going to this uh, seafood restaurant that they had picked out for us. And I wanted to bring some interesting bottles of wine that we could have with dinner that would be something different than Montepulciano d'Abruzzo, just to change things up. And I think maybe it's kind of a curse in a way to come from America where you have so many different wines to choose from and we are not biased in most ways where wine is concerned. And that's really a great thing about America, especially places like California, New York, Chicago. You know, the the diversity of the choices that we have is really something very exceptional. And it is not until you live in a different part of the world that you realize just how wonderful the choices are. So anyway, my friends come to pick me up to go to, to dinner. And I have this wine with me and they said, what are you doing with the wine? And I said, well, I'm just going to bring a couple of bottles in for dinner. And then my friend said, oh, you you can't bring wine in for dinner. And I said, what? You can't just pay a corkage fee and have wine for, no, they don't really do that here. And I'm like, oh gosh. Anyway, 
All right, so I sucked it up. We got to this restaurant that they wanted to surprise me with, and it turns out that I had been to this restaurant a couple of months before with another friend, and it is this great seafood restaurant, and I had had this really good conversation with the owner of the restaurant, this woman and her family on the restaurant. And so when we went in, my friends were a little unhappy because I'd already been there and it wasn't as much of a surprise as they wanted it to be. But then because I knew this woman, I said, hey, I know it's not a thing here in Italy, but do you think that maybe just maybe I could bring a bottle or two of wine in? Would that be possible? And she said, oh, of course, David, absolutely. Sure, bring it in. So we went out to the car, brought it in. And unfortunately, I can't tell you what happens next because we got to take a little break. But if you just uh, hang on to this thought for a second, I will finish up that thought and then we will dovetail the story into the main purpose of my discussion here today on Grape Encounters Radio. Thanks for being with me. Be right back. Did you know that some wines are just as delicious and desirable after 100 years as they were when they were young? Hmm. Should, should I be seeing a winemaker instead of my doctor? Grape Encounters will return right after this. At MM Organics, we're surrounded by health nuts. That's because we're obsessed with lowering blood pressure, cholesterol, and the risk of cancer. We want to make weight loss easier and help you strengthen everything from your heart to your teeth, nails, and hair. Full disclosure. Those health nuts are actually dry-farmed heirloom certified organic raw walnuts. Rich with essential vitamins and nutrients, they're vastly superior to other nuts. Imagine, walnuts can actually lower stress and boost your brain power. No wonder MM Organics customers are so darn smart. MMOrganics.com is where you'll find our uniquely irresistible raw walnuts, walnut butter, oil and flour, sprouted flavored walnuts, and decadent fair trade chocolate covered walnuts, which pair beautifully with our legendary two horse port style wine. MMOrganics.com. Eating any other nuts is just plain nuts. So there are times when I do get some sideways looks in Italy because I don't know, I'm just a maverick, a rule breaker. And I guess that's probably okay when you do it in your own country, when you do it in somebody else's country. Sometimes you're going to get some looks and I'm not there to change the way people think and eat in Italy. I just, I'm coming from a very different space. And so I'm going out to dinner with my friends and I've gotten permission to bring some wine in, which is not usually done in a restaurant. Usually you can't bring your own wine in, but I did. And it was nice because the owner of the restaurant had met me before. We had a good conversation. She was very accommodating. And by the way, when I was telling my friends about bringing wine inside a restaurant, I told them that I didn't know why Italian restaurants objected to you bringing wine in because they can just charge a corkage fee. And they asked me what that was. And I said, you just pay a fee for them to open the bottle and serve you and all that. And they asked how much the fee was. And I said, it could be between $10 and $25. And they almost fell over when I said that. Like, why would they charge you so much money for that? And I said, it's not a lot of money. They have to bring out the glasses, open the bottle, serve you, wash the glasses. There's a lot of work. It's basically a service charge. But 10 euros? 
that's a lot of money. We see things differently. Anyway, I brought the wine in to this wonderful restaurant that serves incredible seafood. The name of the restaurant, by the way, is Costa Verde, and it is in the town of Silvi on the east side of Italy, just across from Rome, but on the shore of the Adriatic Sea. And they just serve the most delicious seafood there, but they are famous for something called brodetto. I'll tell you what that is in just a second. But I put the wine down on the table and then proceed to take it out of the bag. And there were two bottles. One was a bottle of Francia Corta, and the other was a bottle of Brunello. Now, Francia Corta, if you're not familiar with it, is the Italian equivalent to champagne. It's made exactly the same way as champagne is made. It's made with the same grapes. I love Francia Corta. In fact, if I was given the choice between champagne and Francia Corta, I would pick the Francia Corta. I just have had very good experiences with it. And by the way, it's a lot less expensive, but it's really high quality. So, you know, the next time you're looking for bubbly and you're in a big place like Total Wine and More, Ask for Francia Corta. You will not be disappointed. The other bottle was a Brunello, a red wine, Italian wine from out of the region, right? And then I got sideways looks again. Like, why are you bringing a bottle of red wine into a seafood restaurant? They asked me that, and I said because it would pair perfectly with the brodetto. Now, let's talk about what a brodetto is. So they bring out this platter, right? And on the platter, you will get several different kinds of seafood. In a way, you can think, you know, maybe, but it's usually whole fish, and they're smaller fish, head on, tail on, bone in, and it can vary depending upon where you are, and it's based upon the fresh catch of the day. By the way, in Italy, they don't really serve frozen fish in restaurants. It's going to be what they caught. And that's really a great thing, right? But in addition to the different fish that will be on the platter, and this one, by the way, had monkfish. It had cod, a couple of things that I've never heard of before. There were also different kinds of shellfish on there. Scampi, mussels, clams. What am I forgetting? Oh, yeah, calamari. Now, this brodetto is in a tomato-based sauce. And it's a very, very rich sauce. And the thing that I've been trying to get people to comprehend is stop the business of trying to pair wine with the protein because you really need to focus on the sauce. And this sauce is so rich and delicious and really pretty dark that a hearty red wine will do very well with this food. And I had a little bit of a time convincing my friends to let me open the bottle of red wine and have them try it with the food, but they semi-trust me, right? So they said, okay, and we poured them actually a glass of both the red and the white at the same time and we did the unthinkable, which was to go back and forth between the red and white wine and enjoy the brodetto. And it was like three people in hog heaven. And I can't believe that 
my friend Antonio looks at me and he says, you know, he says, I think that we are so stuck with our rules that I feel almost ashamed or embarrassed if I break the rules and that this is really good with the fish. And I said, I told you, man, it's, it is. Just d d forget about the rules. The new rules are, if it feels good, do it. And so we had a, a truly wonderful time. Now, one thing I want to tell you about Brodetto that I think is super special. It's such a cool idea. And you could do this at home. So you can look for any recipe to cook fish in a tomato base. And, or you can just look up Brodetto. There are recipes for Brodetto on the internet, so check it out. But what they do is really fun. Once you finish up all the seafood, they then take the platter away from the table and get this. They go back in the kitchen and they toss in fresh pasta. Usually it's spaghetti. Isn't that totally cool? And so they take what the remaining sauce is and then they mix it in with spaghetti and they bring it back out to the table and you have this whole new entree and it's super fun. Now it's a little bit backwards as far as Italy is concerned because usually they serve pasta first and then your your second course or your main course which is going to be the fish. But in this case it's backwards but it is really super delicious and super fun. Now as long as as we're talking about rules in Italy, I should mention the fact that Americans can get themselves in a lot of trouble by doing what we typically do in America where Italian food is concerned. And a couple of the specifics are this. First of all, bread you have to be very careful with. Now, when you go into an Italian restaurant, there will be, generally speaking, a bag of bread on the table. There aren't bread baskets anymore. It's in bags. And so you arrive at the restaurant. You can begin enjoying the bread of the shoot even before the food is on the table. That's what they want you to do. You want to pour a little olive oil on the bread. That's perfectly okay. We are used to, a lot of the time, having balsamic vinegar at the table. That is not as common. But anyway, enjoy the bread. Now they're going to bring out the pasta. Now, Americans will typically take that bread and dip it in the sauce and eat the bread with the pasta. And if you do that in Italy, you are going to get all kinds of sideways looks because you just don't do that. It is really considered to be tacky if you do that. However, when you finish your pasta and you have sauce left on your plate, you may now grab some bread. <laughs> yeah, you can grab some bread and you can sop it all up and just have a good time. There's another thing that we do in the U.S. that you have to be a little careful of there or you will, again, get sideways glances. That has to do with Parmesan cheese. Now, for me, I like Parmesan cheese on everything. As a matter of fact, strangely, I don't really keep salt on the table. And by the way, Italian restaurants, you will never find salt and pepper on the table. And I wouldn't recommend even asking for it. But I don't keep salt on my table either, but I generally do keep a lot of Parmesan cheese around because I use it instead of salt, and I use it for seasoning, and I put it on everything. And honestly, I don't think I've ever tried it on ice cream but I think I would probably like it. I'm really honest, being honest with you. I just love Parmesan cheese. It's okay 
to put Parmesan cheese on pasta with a red sauce. And there are some pastas, other pastas with a white sauce that you can do it, but you're not supposed to put Parmesan cheese on everything. And I honestly don't know all the rules where Parmesan is concerned, but suffice to say, if there is a container of Parmesan cheese on the table, then that's your green light that you can probably put Parmesan cheese on your entree, or not your entree, but your pasta dish. But it could also be for somebody else on the table, so it might be best to ask. Generally speaking, red sauce, Parmesan, perfectly okay. Now, if you do have a meat course or something like that, they will probably have taken the Parmesan cheese away because you're not supposed to eat that with the main course. So that's the way it goes, okay? All right, now I'm going to come back and do what I promised that I would do. I said I would talk about it this week because we didn't have time last week, but I am going to talk about wine recommendations that you see online and from bloggers and birth, and my litmus test of questions that you probably ought to ask yourself, and if you can, ask the blogger that will, I think, be important as to whether or not you should have confidence in what you are reading. And you'll understand when we come back with the home stretch of Grape Encounters. At every family gathering, my brother Steve and I each bring several bottles of wines and try to one-up each other. I bring wines from all over. Steve only brings wines from California's Mendocino wine country, where he's lived for decades. And even though there are hundreds of great wineries there he can choose from, he mostly brings wines from the Graziano family of wines. Now you'd think you'd see a lot of duplicates from past gatherings since most producers only make 6 to 12 wines, but Graziano has 5 brands that make literally dozens, upwards of 30 mostly Italian varietals, and all rock stars. Made by the real rock star, Greg Graziano. You can hear my recent interview with Greg at GrapeEncounters.com, and you can find Graziano wines all over America, or buy them online at GrazianoFamilyOfWines.com. I've never confessed how much I love Graziano wines to my brother, and uh, let's keep it that way. Back with Grape Encounters Radio and a little unfinished business from last week because there was something that I wanted to share with you, but I, I just didn't have the time. We were talking about wine recommendations, wine tasting notes, uh, wine and food pairings, and specifically where pairings are concerned. I read recommendations from people all the time, and they just seem so out of context, so arbitrary, actually, because there are a lot of unanswered questions that I often have have as I'm reading this stuff. And so I came up with a list of 11 different things that I think if you are writing a blog about pairing, or if you're reading one about wine and food pairing, that these would be very good questions to act as sort of a litmus test. And I think it's really helpful to the person who's reading these suggestions, helpful for them to understand why they should be listening to you in the first place. And so, as I said, there's 11 of them. It begins with, I think, the most obvious question, and 
it has to do with this idea of perfect pairing. So you make a recommendation. We often call these recommendations perfect pairings. But my question is perfect for who? You know, how many other wines did you try with the food to come to this conclusion? Who did you have in mind when you deemed this the perfect pairing? What inspired your choice to label this as the ideal accompaniment? Did you consider any other options before making your selection? It's a really important point, but very often that's a question that's not really answered in the recommendation. Second thing is, what's the backstory? Why, when, and how did this pairing take place? Did you methodically research pairing recommendations from others? Did you go to a wine dinner? Was this a recommendation from a psalm at a restaurant? Or are you just recalling a pleasant memory? Or are you just winging it? There's a lot of different reasons why you may have been motivated to sit down and write about this, but I just want to know the backstory because I think sometimes people feel like they have a need to write something, to blog, to put something out there, and I think much of the time, there's not a lot behind it. Okay, uh, right along those same lines, what was the motivation for writing or recording a review? Are you writing this review because you're given free wine to try by a producer? Do you feel obligated? Now, I know that sounds kind of cruel to make that statement, but this does happen a lot. Somebody is given some wine, and then there's this expectation that in exchange for the wine, they have to write a review. And of course, the review has to be favorable. And so, uh, you know, I think that's something that really ought to be disclosed if that is the case. Nothing wrong with it, by the way. That happens to me all the time. People say, hey, I want to give you some wine and uh, I want to see what you think. And usually, if I don't like the wine, I'm just not going to write anything. But the last thing in the world that I'm going to do is write a positive review just because I got some free wine. Because what happens if, you know, somebody gives you a case of wine and there's uh, some wines in there you don't like? I just think it's just better to say nothing at all. All right, let's see. Uh, Next thing is how much and where. So important. How much were these wines and how do I get them? This is a big deal. So many times I read pairing recommendations or wine recommendations, but then I can't figure out where to get the wine. It's just not readily available. So if that's the case, the whole point is moot. Why even write about something that most of the people that are reading about it can't get? Next one, food or wine first. This is kind of a which came first, the chicken or the egg. In other words, did you start with the food and then seek out a complimentary wine, or did you discover a wine you like and then search for a food that paired well with it? Now, some people care more about the wine than the food and others vice versa, and it's just, I think, really good to know where you're coming from. Uh, Next one, why do you really like this wine? Now, it seems like a ridiculous question, but it's a question almost nobody answers. You state that the wine tones down the intense spiciness of the food, but what if some of your followers like their food even spicier? I mean, this is kind of an interesting thing, and I've read this a lot, especially where spice is concerned, that that statement, it tones down the spiciness. And for for me, a person who just loves spicy, I'd like it to be just the opposite. All right, next one, terroir. Please, please enlighten us as to why the terroir is so important where this food and wine pairing is concerned. So a lot of people will write things like, the wine shows off the terroir 
terroir perfectly. But what the heck do you mean by that? Can you give us a specific example of characteristics from the region where the wine was made that can be detected in the wine itself? For instance, are the hillsides around the vineyard dense with fragrant flowers? And can you detect that in the wine? What does the region where this wine is made smell like after a summer rain shower? Can you sense that aroma in the wine? I mean, what is it about this place that gives a flavor to the wine that you're really going to love that you're not going to get in wine from other places? It seems like an obvious question, but it's something that I think a lot of people miss out on the opportunity to tell us. All right, so this next one has to do with hyperbole. And I tend to be a very hyperbolic person, but I also tend to get a little irritated when wine descriptions and recommendations are so colorful and flowery that I don't know what you're really talking about. But on the other hand, if a food and wine pairing is so great and worthy of writing about, why don't some people do backflips when they write about it? You know, what is the harm in incorporating some hyperbole into the recommendation? Why do you seem so reluctant to gush with effusiveness? I mean, if a wine makes you think about your first kiss or a very special celebration that you had or some incredible event in your life, then, you know, tell us about it. All right, next, what's in it for me? How does this food and wine pairing review benefit or impact me? You were very fortunate because you got to go to this Michelin star restaurant in Europe. You were served three of the renowned chef's signature dishes and they blew your mind. But instead of making us feel jealous, how can we, your readers or listeners, benefit from your experience? Is our only option to spend $3,000 on a trip to the Loire Valley? I mean, what can we learn from your Michelin star dining experience? Is there a way to recreate the same level of sophistication without spending thousands of dollars on an overseas trip? Uh, Let's see, accountability. Now, here's a biggie. Are you willing to take responsibility for your recommendation? Give me your thoughts on this scenario. Let's assume we take your advice and end up spending $75 on groceries, $60 on wine. We also spend two hours shopping and three hours in the kitchen. Do you realize that if you're not spot on within reason, it's going to be costly to those of us who trusted your words, not asking for somebody to refund our expenses. I'm just saying, you know, remember, it costs us money to take your recommendations. Okay, qualifications. So what exactly is your background and experience? I mean, let's be clear here. You don't have to be a wine expert. In fact, this could be your very first wine pairing review for all I care. But what matters is that you had an objectively wonderful experience and you were able to successfully conjure up the words to transfer your delight to us. Honestly, some of the best recommendations come from wine newbies who had an experience that was like dying and going to heaven. All right, you know what? That's going to do it for today. Really appreciate you being with me. I will publish this list of questions because I really think it's valuable information that every person who writes a blog or does a podcast ought to try to include if you possibly can. Not all of it, obviously. There's 11 things. Three or four, that would be plenty. But it's very helpful to those of us who want to, in good conscience, take your advice. So thanks very much for being with us today. I will see you next week on the next edition of Grape Encounters. Thank you.